welcome everybody. Um, all right, here we are in month four, day 10, 79 days until trumpets. I'd like to welcome our guests, uh, Emma and Laurent, and um, we will just uh, call upon Brother Gord to open things up with prayer. Oh, yep, everybody stand, please. <laughs> Dearest Father, thank you for another beautiful Sabbath day. We are so privileged to be here. Welcome. I, I know you and your son are welcoming a new person here that we haven't seen before. And we welcome them too, Father, into our brotherhood and sisterhood. We just ask that you be with us all today and be with all the speakers and anybody else who's doing a job today and that you help them along and that you put into their minds what you want them to say, not what they want to say. And uh, we're just so blessed to be, uh, you're directing things, Father, and we're getting all this meat to eat and uh, we are eating it. And Sometimes it's a little difficult digesting it, but if we keep working on it, I know that we will please you and, and get to know what that you want us to know. So we just ask that you be with all the speakers today and that you feed us with what you want us to be fed with. And we ask this in your blessed Son, Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you, Gord. Um, I'll just uh, call uh, Daniel Kowalczyk to give us a scripture reading. He'll be reading uh, John, uh, John 1, um, verse 1 to 12. Good afternoon. John 1, verses 1 to 12. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Amen. Okay. All right. Let's all pick up our hymnals and uh, we'll turn to page 89. I love to tell the story. Page 89. <laughs>
All right, let's turn back to 35, page 35. <coughs> I sing the mighty power of God.
Let's all have a seat. Get ready for the main message today from Pastor Adrian Davis, entitled Matter Matters. Looking forward to this. Thank you very much, Brother Dylan. Good afternoon, brethren. And uh, welcome, Emma. Thanks for joining us. And also welcome, Laurent, from France. Welcome back. (laughs) Well, we have, uh, as some of you may not realize, we do have our Slack platform where we communicate with one another during the week, which is wonderful on different matters. And we do have a channel called Bible Questions. And brethren can post questions there and just back and forth, uh, hear how brethren interpret particularly difficult scriptures. But a question was posed this week which um, got a lot of activity. And the question is, does God exist outside of time? So does time have a beginning and does God pre-exist the beginning of time? And this is a question that has plagued and haunted Christians for hundreds of years, I could say since the beginning of Christianity. And it's what I want to address today. Uh, Some of you may be thinking, who cares? God exists in time, outside of time, what does it matter? It does matter. It does matter. It matters a great deal. And I'd say that uh, this is how false doctrine creeps in. When we cannot detect it, and we allow in the thin edge of the wedge. And once that gets in, It brings with it a network of false doctrines and false ideas. Think of false doctrine as the salesman that won't go away. And as you're shutting the door, not only does he put his foot in the door, but he just happens to say something that captures your attention. And so you open the door and you let him in. Not realizing that behind him is a whole company. And he's bringing the whole company in your house with him. It's like a a seed that you allow to plant, and it starts to grow. And while you're trying to figure out what kind of plant is this, the root system is spreading all over. And you have no idea what you're going to be dealing with. So the answer to this question, if we answer it incorrectly, it is the thin edge of the wedge. And it brings with it a network of ideas that could be very destructive. So, what I want to do is explore with you, and turn with me to Acts 20 as we begin. I want to explore with you the answer to this question, and not from an academic perspective. This is one of those questions that we could go back and forth all day, all night, year after year, and it could be just very titillating intellectually. That's not the perspective that I'm coming with here. I'm coming with the perspective of Acts 20 and verse 28, where the Apostle Paul, in speaking to the elders at Ephesus, says this to the elders, Take heed, beware, therefore, take heed unto yourselves and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. In other words, as an elder, as a shepherd, you're not just accountable for yourself, 
you're accountable for the flock that has been entrusted to you. So take heed to yourself and also to the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. So this is a precious, precious flock, the cost of which was the blood of Christ. And you elders are now overseers, you're now shepherds for this flock, take heed. And so this is the burden that Pastor Murray and I have. That when we address a doctrine, it's not just, hey, this is my idea, what's yours? It's, could this doctrine shipwreck the flock? And if it could, we have a responsibility to address it. So my purpose today is to show clearly and to warn very loudly that the notion of a God that exists outside of time is completely false. Completely and utterly false. And I'll go further. Satanic. This is a satanic doctrine. And we cannot allow it to, to infiltrate our understanding of the God that we worship. So in terms of structure, and I did ask you to look at an article that was written by a Christian man on the concept of God in time, so hopefully you had a chance to look at that. For those of you who haven't, I want to just highlight some of the key points from that article. And then I want to explore the philosophical roots of the, of the arguments in the article. Where, where do these arguments come from? Because there's a very clear path that we can trace back where these ideas come from. And then I want to turn to the Bible and look at the biblical view of God before creation. What, what was God's existence before creation and did time exist? Okay, so we'll look at the article, God, Time, and Eternity. Then I'll explore the philosophical roots of the arguments in that article. And then we'll look at what the Word of God actually says. Look at Ephesians 4. And in verse 11, the Apostle Paul writes, again to Ephesus, that God gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Why? For the perfecting of the saints. So this is a process that we're all going through. And God is moving us to perfection. And in order to do that, he gives us these men. Some are apostles, some are prophets, some are evangelists, some are pastors, and some are teachers. And he gives us these men for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. So there is a building up of the body that's required, and God is giving these gifts for that edification. Until we all come in the unity of the faith. It's a process. We're not all going to agree with each other immediately. It's a process. And God is going to give us guidance along the way so that we can come into this unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. We don't know the Son of God immediately, snap our fingers and we know God. It's a process. Unto a perfect or mature man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth 
be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. So Satan, God works through men and Satan works through men. And when Satan works through men, they're cunning and they're crafty. And you may not spot it right away. But God gives other men as teachers to protect the flock. And so that is the burden and the responsibility that I take very seriously. This article, God, Time, and Eternity, I like the article and I don't like the article. I like the article because it's written from a Christian perspective. So all of the arguments presented are from people who believe in God and who believe in Jesus Christ. So I like that. And I like the article because I think the author was fair. He presented both sides of the argument fairly and objectively. What I didn't like about the article was I'm reading the article, and I finish reading the paragraph, and I think to myself, I have no idea what that means. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what, what are they talking about? And I'm like reading this, art, this paragraph three or four times to try to figure out what are they saying. So a lot of intellectual mumbo jumbo. And I also didn't like the conclusion. Although he was fair to both sides, I completely disagree with the conclusion that he came to. Uh, let me just highlight some of the key arguments from the article. He opens it basically with his conclusion, but he says... If God's, is God's eternity to be construed as timeless or temporal? So does God exist outside of time or within time? He says, God's existence prior to creation would not entail the existence of time if God is in a state that is changeless. He says, but if God sustains real relations with the world, the coexistence of God and the world implies that God is temporal subsequent to the moment of creation. Just pull out some, some other highlights here. He says, the prophet Isaiah says, God is the high and the lofty one who inhabits eternity. But exactly how are we to understand the notion of eternity? It's not clear. Traditionally, the Christian church has taken it to mean timeless, that eternity is timeless. But in his classic work on this subject, Oscar Coleman, who's so giving one point of view now, has contended that the New Testament does not make a philosophical, qualitative distinction between time and eternity. It knows linear time only. So this, uh, this uh, side of the debate is saying when you read the New Testament, the only thing that's in there is that time is linear, and that's it. He maintains primitive Christianity, that's the early church, knows nothing of a timeless God. So the early church, nobody talked about a timeless God. This is something that came later with the philosophers. The eternal God is he who was in the beginning, is now, and will be in the future, who is, who was, and who will be, Revelation 1.4. As a result, God's eternity, says Coleman, must be expressed 
in terms of endless time. Okay, so stay with me on this. When we speak of God as eternal, then we mean either timeless or simply everlasting. Listen to this. The question is which understanding of God's relationship to time is preferred? Taking sharp issue with Coleman's study, who says that time is linear, James Barr has shown that the biblical data are not determinative. So the Bible, in other words, doesn't really have a, a conclusive comment on this. He argues that Coleman's study is based too heavily upon etymology and vocabulary studies. So uh, Coleman, in coming to his conclusion, was doing a lot of word studies. And this gentleman, Barr, says he, he relies too heavily on word studies, and these cannot be determinative in deciding the meaning of a term apart from use. He goes on to say, Barr's basic contention is that a valid biblical theology can be built only upon the statements of the Bible and not the words of the Bible. So this other side of the argument is saying, look, you can't just pick words that you like. Study the vocabulary of these words. Look into the etymology of the words to prove your point. You've got to take a whole statement where the Bible speaks a whole statement about time and use that. When this is done, the biblical data are inconclusive. Now listen to this. If such a thing as a Christian doctrine of time has to be developed, the work of discussing it and developing it must belong not to biblical, but to philosophical theology. I was talking to Mark just before the break, and he says, like, I don't understand all of this. Like, we should go to God to find out what God thinks about God, not men. But the argument they're making here is, the information is not in the Bible, therefore we must go to philosophy. Therefore, the issue lies in the lap of the philosopher, not the theologian. Are there then good philosophical arguments for preferring one of these comp competing notions of God's eternity over the other? I think that there are. And the rest of the article ditches the Bible and we get into a philosophical discussion. Yeah. Come with me to Acts 17. Acts 17, and beginning in verse 17, the Apostle Paul, or sorry, Luke writes about the Apostle Paul, in verse 17, therefore, Paul disputed in the synagogue with the Jews, so he was always disputing with the Jews that Jesus Christ is Messiah, and with the devout persons, and in the market daily with them that met him, so he's in Athens now. He goes to the synagogue, he's disputing with the Jews, but when he goes to the market, he's disputing with the Gentiles. Then, certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? And others some, he seems to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. 
And they took him and brought him unto Arepagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof you speak is? For you bring certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. And so fundamentally, the strange things are that God became man. That he died, was resurrected to glory, and remained on earth. This is bizarre to the Greek mind. That matter is evil. Spirit is good. And the idea that when you die, you would come back to life and remain on the earth, these are very strange things. And then in verse 21, listen to this. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So if you work out all day, every day, are you going to develop some muscle? I think so. You see them on the street. They wear like... uh, you see these men in bikini straps? Because <laughs> they want to show I've been at the gym all day, every day. Well, these guys have some mental muscle. They've been pushing a lot of freight intellectually and have developed a lot of mental muscle because this is what they do all day, every day. Verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some laughed. How ridiculous that the dead would come back to life and be on earth. No, we have an immortal spirit, which is good, which is trapped in flesh, which is evil. And when we die, if we live the right way, the the fleshly body releases our good spirit, which goes back into heaven and back to God. This is the proper understanding. So now you're talking about the resurrection of the dead. They, They mocked. But others said, we'll hear you again of this matter. There's something in the way Paul was articulating that is like, let's hear this again. Verse 33, so Paul departed from among them, but notice verse 34. Don't read over verse 34. So Paul departed from among them. However, certain men clung to him and believed. So they, he was not a stupid man. And he was able to debate and argue with them in such a way that they're like, you know what? Count me in. I believe. Not Jews. Gentiles. Not high school dropouts like me. Intellects. Philosophers. Are listening to Paul and saying, okay, you've convinced me. They believed among the which was Dionysius, the Arapagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So obviously these are big names. So if we were alive at the time, it would be like, no way. Mm. Right? So, picture this now. We have a small congregation, and we're just simple people. Most of us can't even read. And from our understanding of what's been preached to us, we accept Christ. And then we have some intellectual powerhouses that also accept Christ. And they come in among us. And they start telling us how to understand the Bible. And they're able to reason with powerful intellect. And they become our leaders. And they're such powerful speakers. 
And they like, I don't fully understand what that guy said, but it sounded intelligent and he must be right. And this is how they infiltrated the church and ended up taking it over. So that the first council we saw in Acts 15 was all Jews trying to figure out what to do with Gentiles. Within a few years, the ecumenical councils will be all Gentiles trying to stamp every trace of Judaism and Hebraism out of the church completely because of these philosophers. So let us be very, very careful about philosophy, which is what this article and the argument that God is timeless, it is not based on the Bible. It's based on philosophy. Bit of history. We know the world was uh, pre-modern, where everybody believed in gods. Reality was determined by the gods. Then there was the modern world, where we shifted. And reality was determined by logic and reason. Science and discovery. That was the modern world. And now we're in the postmodern world, where there's no such thing as logic. <laughs> reality is whatever you want it to be. So that today, I could stand before you and say, I identify as a woman. <laughs> And if you laugh, I'll have you arrested. I'll have the police on your tail because I identify as a woman, which is preposterous, but we don't believe in logic anymore. And that's, again, the danger of philosophy, the danger of doctrine. It knocks on your door. You open it. You say, that sounds crazy. You want to shut the door. The salesman sticks his foot in the door and says something else that you say, oh, let me hear a bit more. And you let him in. And the whole company, the whole network of ideas comes with that one idea. We would never be where we are today. In fact, Emma was just telling me about uh, the church she was with previously, the minister preaching homosexuality, completely endorsed by God. How do we get there? One step at a time. So we have to guard what comes into our minds. Bit of history. World was pre-modern. Everybody believed in, in God's. And then somehow, don't ask me why, but in a small island called Miletus in Greece, men just started to question this. Do we really believe that the gods are responsible for all of this? And they started to inquire and reason. And this is where philosophy was born, in Greece. By men who challenged the prevailing belief that the gods are responsible for everything. And they just started to think and reason and inquire. And they had different ideas. Some believed that the, the foundation of all life was water. And you can see how they could believe that. Others would say, no, it's air. Some would say it's fire. Some would say it's kind of just nothingness. It's an indeterminate substance that has to be shaped. And then along came a very powerful intellect who was a musician. And because he was a musician, he understood mathematics. And he said, behind the entire universe is mathematics. And the foundation of reality is the number one. That God is one. And everything comes from the number one. So the reality, the foundation of reality is the monad, the singular unit is the foundation of reality. This would change everything. A few hundred years later, Socrates comes on the scene as the standout philosopher of all time. 
Unfortunately, he didn't write anything down. But his student, Plato, did. Not only did Plato write everything down and publish it in books, he also started academies. So Plato is the most known and the most influential philosopher because of the fact that he started schools. And all these uh, philosophers that were contending with Paul taught by Plato. Every philosopher went to Plato's academies and read what, uh, what Socrates taught him. And what Plato, building on Pythagoras, Plato came to the understanding that, indeed, the, the, the root of reality, he called him the one, building on Pythagoras. And then his best student was Aristotle. And Aristotle's student was Alexander the Great. So we go from Pythagoras to Socrates to Plato to Aristotle, and then Alexander the Great takes this beautiful ideas and concepts that the Greeks came up with and spreads it all over the world. And so Greek philosophy influences the whole world because of Alexander the Great. In the ancient history encyclopedia, they write this, Socrates, he lived in 469 BC to 399, was a Greek philosopher and is considered the father of Western philosophy. Plato was his most famous student and would teach Aristotle, who would then tutor Alexander the Great. By this progression, Greek philosophy, as first developed by Socrates, was spread throughout the known world during Alexander's conquests. So this is how it all starts. Now Aristotle, I would say, is really the breakthrough in terms of how the Christian world understands God. So he took what Plato taught him and went from calling it the one to the unmoved mover. And this is like a powerful intellect. And so he sits back and he reasons this way. God must be perfect. Otherwise he's not God. If, if God is not perfect and you can imagine someone who is perfect then there's someone, even in your imagination, who is higher than God. So then this cannot be God. So God has to be the highest and must be perfect. For God to be perfect, he must be outside of time. Because if he's in time, then he's subject to change. So he has to be outside of time. And he's the mover. So he starts everything. He's the first cause. But he has to be unmoved, meaning he cannot be emotionally entangled with his creation. Because I'm corrupt. So if God has a relationship with me, he's defiled himself. So in order for him to be perfect, he must not only be the first mover, he must be unmoved. Have no relationship with his creation, otherwise he's defiled. Is it, is it clear? So this is Aristotle's teaching. This is the root of Christianity. This is the God that Christians worship. And, and it is from this that we get doctrines such as once saved, always saved. Because he's unmoved. So he determines ahead of time who will be saved and who will be cursed. And it does, if, if I'm in the cursed category, it doesn't matter how much I beg and I plead, he has no relationship with me. If he has any relationship with me, he's corrupted. So he has to be aloof and unmoved. 
This is also where we get the doctrine, or the idea, that God cannot look upon sin. That when Jesus Christ was on the cross, God had to turn his back on him. Why? Because he has to be unmoved. He has to be untainted. He has to be perfect. So we have to be careful. When these doctrines come in, they bring a whole network of ideas with them. This is the God of Islam. Allah. Allah is perfect. He's the one, and he's apart from creation. He has no emotional connection to his creation. All of this goes back to Aristotle, which goes back to Plato, which goes back to Socrates, which through a chain of philosophers goes back to Pythagoras, the number one, and perfection. We mustn't confuse Yahweh with these false gods. Yahweh is not an essence. Colossians 2. Colossians 2 and verse 6. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk you in him. Don't get confused. And don't deviate from Christ. As you've received him, so walk you in him. Because there's a risk. There's an enemy that wants to pull you off the path. So stay on the path with Christ. And stay rooted and built up in him. So, so be edified in the Lord. And established in the faith. As you have been taught. So there are people that want to throw you off the path, but God promises to send you teachers. Our job then is to stay rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as we've been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. This is a big deal. This is insidious. Alexander the Great spread the language, the concepts, the ideas of the Greek philosophers all over the world. So whether you call it Hinduism or Islam or Buddhism or even atheism, whatever you want to call it, Greek philosophy is at the root. And we come into Christ and beware that we don't get seduced by philosophy. And, it, and it's not just seduced, but spoiled. We will be spoiled after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. And this article, I hope you had a chance to read it. I had to read it several times. Like, I don't understand what I'm reading here. You know? <laughs> it's so heady. Um, but what, I, what I'm reading is nothing to do with the Bible. He, he quotes Isaiah in the first line, and you don't see the Bible again. Fleeting, it's all philosophy. And so you're like, yeah, that sounds good, that sounds good. And you know, Satan... Satan has men today who through a logical process are convinced that Lucifer is the true God mm -hmm. and Jehovah is the enemy, that Lucifer is the bringer of light. And they come to that conclusion through logic, through philosophy. So this is what he's saying, be careful. We, we want to be rooted in the Bible, not in men's ideas and not in reason and logic. 
So I want to now turn to the Bible for our answer as to whether God exists in time or outside of time. But let me just check in before I do that. Are you with me so far? Have I said anything that's not clear? Do I need to go back over anything? Is everybody clear? Yeah? Okay. I'm not saying you agree with me. You may not agree. I just want to make sure that you understand what I'm saying. And then in the after-sermon discussion, we can talk. What does the Bible say? The article, the the premise of the article, the reason God exists outside of time is because he's changeless. God cannot change. Therefore, he must exist outside of time. That is the premise of the argument. If we can prove that God can change, the whole argument that God exists out of time collapses on its face. The whole premise is built upon the fact that God must be changeless. Why? Because this is the Aristotelian philosophy, that God must be perfect. And if I can imagine anything that's better than God, it's not God. This is why God must be changeless. And therefore, he must be outside of time. Because if he inserts himself into time, he's subject to change. If he has a relationship with his creation, he's subject to change. Malachi 3 is where we get this passage that I am the Lord, I change not. So this is the scripture that Christians would point to to say, see, God doesn't change. He says it in his word. What do I always say? Let's read it in context. Let's read it in context. Context is king. Go back to verse 4. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord. We've seen this over. All the prophets point to the same thing. Judah and Israel are going to disappoint God. They're going to be punished. But he's in covenant with them. He's going to redeem them. So now we're seeing the redemption of Judah and Jerusalem. They will be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old, as in the former years. And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, and against the adulterers, and against the false swearers, and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right, and fear not me, says the Lord of hosts. So Judah has a lot of criminals. Judah is corrupt. Judah is awful. Judah deserves to be destroyed. And then we get verse 6. The reason for verse 4, that Judah will be pleasant to the Lord, even though it's full of criminals and adulterers, is because of verse 6. For I am the Lord. I change not. He's not speaking of his essence, that I'm this nebulous essence and I don't change he's speaking of his covenant that when I make a covenant with you I will never break it it is impossible for me to lie and I've made a covenant with Abraham and I've made a covenant with Israel and despite your breaking the covenant I will not break the covenant I'm the Lord the God of covenant and I change not that's why you sons of Jacob are not destroyed. So in context, this is saying nothing about God's essence not changing. It's saying he will never go back on his covenant. 
And then he says in verse 7, even from the days of your fathers, you've gone away from my, my ordinances and you've not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So we see that this change, that change not, has to do with covenant. So let's now look at a few passages that will help us understand. Does God exist in time or outside of time? Is he timeless? Is eternity timeless? Let's go to John 1. John 1. In in the article, God, Time, and Eternity, he makes this statement. If one accepts that time cannot exist apart from events, then a beginning of events would entail a beginning of time as well. This is a fundamental argument. That time cannot exist without events. Time requires a sequence of events. And if there are no events, if nothing is happening, then there's no time. This, this is the argument. So, therefore, the beginning of time means the beginning of events. This is the philosophical perspective. With that in mind, let's continue here in John 1. In the beginning, so John gives us insight now. We can go all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Wow. We would never, ever, ever, no matter, the the brightest intellectual would never come up with this. This can only come by revelation. That in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. We've translated word is the Greek word logos, and John is doing something very clever here. Very, very clever. If you go to Wikipedia, it says logos is a term in Western philosophy, psychology, rhetoric, and religion derived from a Greek word variously meaning ground, plea, opinion, expectation, word, speech, etc. It became a technical term in Western philosophy beginning with Heraclitus in 535 BC who used the term for a principle of order and knowledge. So to the Greek philosophers, logos meant the fundamental principle of order. So they were looking for the logos. What, you know, is it water? Is, is water the logos? Is it air? Is it the number one? What is responsible for the order that we see in the universe? This is the logos. And then John, while they're philosophizing and saying the Logos is this and the Logos is that, John comes along and says, in the beginning was the Logos that you're searching for. And the Logos was with God. And you know what? The Logos was God. Wow. Very powerful. Because to us, we just think Logos is a Christian concept. No, it's a Greek philosophical concept that John takes and challenges them to their face to say the Logos is God and the Logos is with God. So your number one 
it's out the window. There's two. The same was in the beginning with God. God is a relationship. God is not an essence. God is a person in a relationship with another person. That's who God is. That's who God was. From the beginning, he was in a loving relationship. Those of us who are married, and Daniel's about to get married, enter into a covenant, loving relationship where you're always doing something to please the other. God created marriage because of this. Because of the relationship before the creation that he had with the word. He said, let's, 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 let's expand our family. This is so enjoyable. This is so beautiful. Let's expand it. The philosophers, this is, this is inaccessible to them. So with all their philosophizing, they start off with the wrong premise. They start off with Pythagoras and end up with Aristotle. All, listen to this. All things were made by him. He's with God, but he makes everything. There's, there's, a, there's a coordinating team here. There's discussion. So everything that he makes, he's making after lengthy discussion with the Father. And they've come to decisions. And now he creates. It's not some essence that's just, and then creation happens. It's two persons in a loving covenant relationship with each other, wanting to expand it and having a plan as to how to do it. And then the word creates. The word, the logos. So the creation, by definition, is a creation of order and relationship and truth. Because it comes from the Logos. The Logos is what brings creation into being. So it has to come in an orderly way. Because it's coming from order. The principal foundation of life. He says, In him was life. And listen to this. And the life was the light of men. The Logos is the light. And the light shines in darkness. And the darkness, says here, comprehended it not. The darkness could not overtake the light. So when the light shines, the darkness flees. This is the Logos. He's the light that conquers darkness. Please remember this. We'll come back to it. In verse 9 he says, That was the true light that lights every man that comes into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. The Logos created everything, and then he entered into the world. There's a connection between the logic that's in the world that the philosophers were trying to figure out what is the root of the order and logic that we see in the universe? There is a connection between that order and logic and the Logos who pre-existed all of this creation. 
he brought the logic and order before creation that he had with the Father. And as he creates, he brings, he inserts that logic and order into the creation. Therefore, time must exist before the creation. You can't have logic and order without time. You can't have a relationship without time. You can't love somebody without time. You can't please somebody without time. I have to do something for you to experience it and then respond to it. And then as you respond, I respond to your response. And these things happen over time, before creation. Then when we create the physical universe, we insert our logic and order into our creation. He says this, He came unto his own, that is to Israel, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, among his own, there are Jews that accepted him and the Gentiles grafted in, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his own name. The God of the Bible is expanding his family. He's changing. Prior to creation, it was him and the word. Now it's going to be him and the word and all of Israel will be married to the word and become part of the God family. So, if a timeless God depends on a God that must be perfect, and a God that must be perfect cannot change, but we've shown here that God changes. And he will change in a very big way. Therefore, this argument that God is timeless is out the window. The God of the Bible changes. Christ is going to be our elder brother. We're going to marry him. It's going to be a family. He says in verse 14, And the word, the Logos, was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He tells them on that. The, 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 the Logos that pre-existed came in and he dwelt with men. And the way he thought, the way he spoke, we had, or these men, were seeing something, were seeing a being that pre-existed creation. <clears throat> Verse 18. Listen to this. No man has seen God at any time. That's why the philosophers are going crazy. Trying to figure out the Logos. What, what, what is this all about? We know it's not the gods. So, so everyone believes, you know, this little idol that I make here, we need to bow down and worship it because it's God. And the philosophers are saying, mm, no, I'm having trouble with that. And so they're trying to figure out, what is this? And John is telling us here, no man has seen God at any time. Listen. This is, this is important. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. 
There's a relationship. He's in the bosom of the Father. He's the only one that has seen God. This is very important. Because in the philosophical argument, they're saying that events require a mind that is seeing and experiencing something outside of its own mind. That's what an event is. Because they cannot conceive of a God that comprises the Word and the Father, they, can't, they just have this Aristotelian view of this perfect essence. And here's what Aristotle said. God is thought. But because God must be perfect, it's thought thinking about itself thinking. That's what God is. Why thinking about itself? Because if you were to think about you or I, that would degrade him. So the high God can only be thinking about himself, thinking. And that is perfection. This essence. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a person. In love with another person. Who wants to expand this love to other persons. No one has seen God. But the Logos has seen him. And is in his bosom. And came to earth. This requires time. This requires a loving relationship. The fact that God is a person, Moses makes clear in Exodus 31. Exodus 31. And verse 18. And he gave unto Moses, when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony, tables of stone, listen, written with the finger of God. We are made in God's image. That's why we have fingers. We do things with fingers. God does things with his fingers. We're made in the image of God. This was written with the finger of God. Chapter 33. And verse 20. And he said, You cannot see my face. This is God talking to Moses. You cannot see my face. The reason you and I have faces that look the way they do, because God has a face. Because Jesus sat with God face to face. Two persons loving each other. This is why we have a face. You cannot see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. No man has seen the Father, but Christ came into the world to declare him. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand upon a rock. And it shall come to pass, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in a cliff of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand. We have hands, because God has hands. We do things with our hands. I will cover you with my hand while I pass by, and I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back parts. God has a back. But my face shall not be seen. This is hard for philosophers. 
it's not hard for us. Because we just, we believe the Bible. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God. And the Word was with God. John 8. John 8 and verse 28. Then said Jesus unto them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am He. Listen to this. And that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father has taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me. And the Father has not left me alone. Lord, why hasn't the Father left you alone? Oh, glad you asked. Because I do always those things that please him. We were talking about your horse and how she wants to please you. And there's a partnership there. There's a partnership here. And Christ always does those things that please him. When? When he came to the earth? Is that when he said, oh, I know I was cantankerous up in heaven, but now that I'm on earth, let me try to please you. Or is this an eternal relationship where the word is always doing those things that please the Father? And the Father is always doing those things that please the word. And it's a partnership, like a marriage, a healthy marriage. It's a partnership, it's a relationship. There are events. There's the passage of time as the relationship develops. John 14. John said unto him, verse 9, Have I been so long time with you, and yet you have not known me, Philip? So there's a relationship here, and I'm spending time with you, and I expect you... Since you spend time with me, you should know me. He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how say you then, show us the Father? So because of the relationship they had with Christ, he's saying you should know me. And if you know me, you know the Father. So the way you know somebody is through relationship. John 17, verse 24. Father, John 17, verse 24. Father, I will that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before, before, before the foundation of the world. Before the world was created, the Father loved the Word. It's right there. Two people in a relationship. You loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you have sent me. From the article, God, Time, and Eternity, time is merely a relation among objects that are apprehended in an order of succession or that objectively exist in such an order. Time is a form of perceptual experience and of objective processes in the external to the mind world. A lot of gobbledygook, but basically saying, 
Time can't exist unless something is happening outside of one mind and it's being perceived. And Christ is saying, before we created anything, you loved me. One mind interacting with another mind. Again from the article, in the section re, creatio ex nihilo, had to look that up, (laughs) means basically creation out of nothing. If one accepts that time cannot exist apart from events, then a beginning of events would entail a beginning of time as well. In their mind, nothing existed until the universe existed. But Christ makes it clear. Before he created anything, the Father loved him, and he was with the Father in his bosom. He comes to this conclusion in the article. So there's two, basically, um, two premises here. All the arguments fall on one side or the other. One is the Newtonian view that says that time has no beginning and no ending, and it's linear. The other is the relational view that says that time did not exist before creation, and it came into being at creation, so therefore God was outside of time. But then they modify it to say, once creation occurred, God then entered into time. But prior to creation, he was outside of time. And then this author concludes that the relational view is right. He says, thus, the proper understanding of God, time, and eternity would be that God exists changelessly and timelessly prior to creation and in time after creation. And that word changelessly is the key. This is Aristotle. Because they are so influenced by Greek philosophy, God must be changeless. And if he must be changeless, he has to exist outside of time. So I I want to uh, just spend a bit of time in Genesis to go through the creation because there's some clues in here that are going to really knock this on its head but I think I've been talking for a little bit can we just have a hymn and then I'll come back and finish in Genesis Stand up. Well, walk on the spot for a bit. Move your legs around. <laughs> get some circulation happening. Um, all right, page 31.
things out if you need to shake things out mm-hmm. now and have your seat. Pastor Adrian Dave. Thanks very much for that, Brother Dylan. Let's go to Genesis 1, where we see the counterpart to John 1. Genesis 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So if you're wondering, how, how did all this get here? Where did the universe come from? Moses tells us, God did. When we put this together with John, we realize that the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and nothing was made that the Word didn't make. So therefore, in the beginning, the Word created the heavens and the earth. Now, when he did this, he had an audience. Let's go to Job. Hold your place in Genesis 1. I guess you don't have to because at the beginning of the Bible. You should be able to find that one. <laughs> Let's go to Job 38. Job 38. To see that when the Word created the heavens and the earth, he had an audience. Job 38 and verse 4. God challenges Job, and he says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? So we know that God the Father loved the word before the foundations of the earth, so they had a relationship before. We know from John that God the word is the one that created. So this is the the word speaking. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if you have understanding. And then in verse 7 he says that when he laid the foundations of the earth was when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of the earth shouted for joy. So in verse 4, when I laid the foundations, this is in the masculine singular. It's one person talking. But in 38.7, the morning stars and the sons of God are in the masculine plural. This is the audience to the creation of the foundations of the earth. So this shows us the morning stars are the stars of the sky. And they sang together. And this is what Pythagoras was getting at, that everything vibrates. And everything is making sound. Everything is making music. And so the morning stars were vibrating. And they had a glory. And they were there when Christ laid the foundations of the earth. But not only them, the sons of God shouted for joy. What the word did was so exciting that the angels shouted for joy. They were blown away. Therefore, the angels pre-exist the creation of matter. Therefore, there were events that took place before the creation of matter. Therefore, there was time before the universe. Now, some may say, The sons of God are not angels. Same book. Let's go to Job 1. Job 1 and verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. So God is holding a conference, the angels come, and Satan comes as well. 
and uh-oh, I thought God was so holy he couldn't look upon sin. What, what, what captures sin more than Satan? And God is having a conversation with Satan. But he can't look upon Christ, who does everything that pleases him. And his very death is the culmination of the pleasure of the Lord. But he can have a conversation with Satan. You've got to be careful about Aristotle. Chapter 2. And verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord in heaven, before his throne. And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. So very clearly, when God created the physical universe, the angels were in audience. And they were in awe. And they shouted for joy for what God did. Back to Genesis. So, the word is the one that created the heavens and the earth. And let's, let's, let's say the Greek, the Logos. Which, to that audience at that time, understood that the log for hundreds of years, for 500 years, they understood from Heraclitus that the Logos is the fundamental orderly principle of creation. What is it? From which we get biology, psychology, sociology, all of these ologies which have to do with the pursuit of the truth of the matter. So the Logos is the source of order. He spoke creation into existence. Because he is order, creation that he makes is orderly. Order is not going to create chaos. So the beautiful Logos, when he speaks his beautiful words, he creates beauty. And then we come to verse 2. And Moses writes, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of the God moved upon the face of the waters. The, the word was, haya in Hebrew, means to become. Something has, be, it, it became something. It was in one state, and it's now completed, and it's in another state. So the earth became tohu wabohu, which means chaotic and confu- confu- chaos and confusion. This is not how the word creates. Something has happened between verses 1 and 2. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. So what we have here, something ha- after creation, something happened that plunged the world into complete darkness. If, you were, if we put our hand in front of our face, we wouldn't be able to see it. Complete darkness and water. And it's all chaotic. <clears throat> Excuse me. So there's chaos, there's darkness, and there's water. Tohu wabohu. Hold your place here. Jeremiah 4. Jeremiah 4. What is tohu wabohu? How does it come about? In Jeremiah 4, this is looking forward now. This is prophetic. I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void. 
the earth became tohu wabohu. How? And the heavens, they had no light. The very same condition that we see in Genesis 1-2. We see in Jeremiah 4. Verse 26. I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, or became a wilderness. What was beautiful became ugly. And all the cities thereof were broken down at the presence of the Lord, and by his fierce anger. God is a person. He has emotions. Something happened that angered him. And he took what was beautiful and made it tohu abohu. For thus has the Lord said, verse 27, The whole land shall be desolate, yet will I not make a full end. The very same condition that we see in Genesis 1-2, we see fulfilled here, or predicted here, it's going to happen again. The fierce anger of the Lord is going to turn the earth tohu wabohu. So this is judgment. And so there was a judgment on Satan. And that's what caused the earth to become tohu wabohu. In Isaiah 45, in verse 18, the prophet Isaiah says, For thus says the Lord that created the heavens. We know this is the word. Jesus created the heavens. For thus says the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, what we just read in Genesis 1. This is what he says. He has established it. He has created it not in tohu. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. So when he created the earth, he created it to be inhabited. So this condition that we find ourselves reading in verse 2, where it's utter darkness, and if you can't even see your hand in front of your face, there's just chaotic water everywhere, and it's all confusion. It's uninhabitable. Isaiah tells us God did not create the earth that way. The word speaks order, but somehow chaos came, and that's not what God created. That chaos came from God's judgment. Let's go back to Genesis 1. Now, in a world that is completely dark, there's nothing but darkness. You cannot tell the time. You have no idea how to tell the time. There's no way to measure time. It's just dark. And then we come to verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. John tells us that the Logos is the light. And the light shines into the darkness. And the darkness cannot overcome it. And so the Logos said, let there be light. And light shone into the darkness. And God saw the light that it was good. The darkness is not good. The darkness is evil. And it's from the leader of evil. But God saw the light that the Logos spoke into existence. And he said it's good. And God divided the light from the darkness. He didn't completely do away with the darkness. He just divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first.
first day. Now we can measure time. Time existed, but we couldn't measure it. Now he gives us the ability to measure it. Oh, this is the first, we have a morning, we have, we have an evening, we have a morning, that's one. We have an evening, we have a morning, that's two. Prior to the light showing up, there was no way to measure time. Does that mean that time doesn't exist? Just because we can't measure it? It's ridiculous. So we're on the first day. Drop down to verse 14. And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament, we're now on the fourth day of the heaven, to divide the day from the night. So God already divided the day from the night. So we already had a clock. Whenever it's the evening, a new day is beginning. Whenever it's, uh, so the evening and the morning together, that's a day. So we already have a clock from day one. On day four, he introduces a different clock. It replaces the first clock. So now he brings into existence the sun and the moon. And he says, it will be, they'll be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. So these are for counting time. Well, we could already count time. First, we, couldn't, we don't know how much time passed until the evening and the morning were the first day. And then we could count time. Now on day four, he replaces the clock. So now we can count time a different way. Verse 15, Genesis 1. Oh, so, so let them be for lights. So he, he did that and he said that they're good. And that was the fourth day, verse 19. Now the evening and the morning were the fourth day, but we're using a different clock. Let's go back to the second day, verse 6. Genesis 1, 6. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. So it's just, it was just water and darkness. So first he says light. Now he's dividing the waters. And let it divide the waters from the waters. So now we have water on earth, there's sky, and then there's other water. And he made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. So now we have the water divided. <coughs> That's the second day. Jump forward to the fifth day on the 20th where God now says, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that has life and the fowl that may fly above the earth. So on the first day, he creates light and the separation between light and darkness. On the fourth day, he brings the sun and moon to separate sun and darkness. On the second day, he separates the waters. And on the fifth day, he populates the waters. And God created whales and every living creature that moves, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind. And then he brings forth the winged fowl to populate the sky. And then we go back to the third day. So we've got day one, day two, corresponding with day four, day five. Now on day three, and God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place and let the dry land appear. So on day three now we have the land. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And now he says in verse 11, let the earth bring forth grass and herb yielding seed, so it becomes fertile soil. Fast forward to the sixth day, verse 24. And God said, 
Let the earth bring forth the living creature after its kind. So on day one, he deals with light and darkness. On day four, he deals with the sun and moon. On day two, he deals with separating the waters from the sky. On day five, he puts animals in the water and in the sky. On day three, he separates the earth from the waters. And on day six, he populates the earth with animals. But not just animals. Verse 26. And God said, Let us, you and I, the Word and the Father, make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the creation. Then, in verse 27, listen to this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. How? Male and female. The sexual activity between a husband and a wife is the image of God. He could have said, let me make man in my own image and just make the man. There I am. He didn't do that. Male and female, sexual creatures, that that sexual union reflects what we have. Does time, did time exist before creation? Was there intimacy between the Word and the Father? Was the Word in the Father's bosom? Did the Father love Christ before he created anything? With so much joy that they said, let's share this? So then he makes man in his own image, male and female. That that sexual union reflects God. And the dominion. So it's sexual union, intimacy, and dominion. So they have all this dominion over all the creation. That's God. That's the image of God. So he blesses them, and that's the sixth day. Look now at chapter 2, verse 1. Genesis 2 and verse 1. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. The whole universe is done. Moses tells us this is how it happened. So, just like in John 1, when the Greek philosophers are like, what's the Logos? What's the Logos? I think it's this. And they spend their whole time intellectualizing. John comes along and says, the Logos is God. And the Logos was with God. In the same way, these pagans in Moses' day are like, oh, I worship the sun. The sun is God. No, the moon is God. No, that star over there is God. No, Venus is God. In the beginning, God created all of these things, and they're just a clock. Same thing. And now we see the clock. Genesis 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ceased from his work, which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day, not because he was tired, because he was creating something new. He created now by resting. He rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. Mission accomplished. Everything is in place. The man and the woman have a sexual union, and they have dominion so that they're in our image. Now let's fellowship with them. Now let's train them. 
Now let's teach them to be like us. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work, which God had created and made. And I, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that he blessed it by resting. And he says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. The whole universe comes together on the seventh day. There is no separation. There is no denigration of matter. Heavens and earth, physical and spiritual, temporal and eternal, all come together in unity on the Sabbath. And God says it's all good. The only thing that's not good is the darkness. But the light shines into the darkness, and every single day when we see the light, it's pointing to the fact that the Logos will destroy darkness. From the very beginning, Satan was doomed. And the darkness that he brought upon the earth was sentenced to finish. Because every time the light comes and replaces the darkness, that's a reminder to Satan, your days are numbered. The, the Greek mind is saying that matter is filthy. Matter is evil. That comes from the devil. He hated the fact that he was on earth. God says, why would you hate that? And he comes to earth, gets down on his hands and knees, and makes a replica of himself, and breathes life into it, and says, we're going to spend forever together. This is what God thinks of matter. It's not like matter is filthy. And therefore, you know, what's pure is God in this timeless state, thought, thinking about itself, thinking. And no relationship to its creation. The exact opposite of the God of the Bible. Totally related to his creation. I'm going to marry you. And we're going to spend eternity together. On earth and glorify the whole physical universe. Revelation 21. Revelation 21 and verse 1. The complement to Genesis 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Yet, this earth has been corrupted. God has allowed Satan to do his thing. And he has corrupted the earth. But God is still committed to the earth. And he's committed to dwelling with man on the earth. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away or replaced. And there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So think of this as the wedding dress that all the saints will be in. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the dwelling place of the eternal God is with men, and he will dwell with them. God is happy to participate in his creation. He loves it. He loves the earth and he loves man and he's going to dwell with man forever and they shall be his people 
and God himself shall be with them and be their God. The Greek mind can't fathom this. Chapter 22 and verse 4. And they shall see his face. In another place it says, you know, we're the children of God, but we don't yet know what we shall be, but we know that we will be like him because we will see him as he is. We are going to change. We're going to be born into his family. He says, And his name shall be in their foreheads, and there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. The light overcomes the darkness. And they shall reign forever and ever. This is not a timeless state. This activity will be taking place. And it's going to happen forever and ever and ever. Time is defined as the indefinite continued progress of existence and events in the past, present, and future regarded as a whole. The continued progress of existence as affecting people and things. God and the Word are two persons that exist in a loving relationship. Prior to the creation of the universe, they created the angels prior to the creation of the universe. Then they created the universe, and the angels sang for joy. It was spectacular. And God loves this physical universe, and he wants to share it with us. He wants to, do th- he wants to unlock the properties of matter, that we will understand every planet, every star, and the different properties they have and do great things with them in a loving relationship with him. We'll conclude in Romans 8. While we're going there, consider this. The word said, let there be light. It's the fastest moving thing we know. We use it to measure the universe. A light year is 9.5 trillion kilometers. I don't even know what that number means. That in a year, light will travel 9.5 trillion, not million, not billion, trillion kilometers. So one light year is 9.5 trillion kilometers. The best estimate of the observable universe is that in diameter from one end to the other, it is 93 billion light years. So multiply 93 billion by 9.5 trillion, and that's how long it will take light to travel the universe. That's how how big it is. And that's the observable. What the scientists are saying is, the unobservable universe is even bigger. Mm -hmm. That the observable universe is a speck compared to the unobservable universe. And God created all of this matter to share in a loving relationship, in a covenant relationship. We conclude in Romans 8. Verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. It's a family. I thought God had to be changeless. 
No, you're wrong. No intellectual power can get this kind of secret information. It comes by revelation. That the, the Logos is God. The Logos is with God in a loving family relationship. And he's going to change that family by bringing us into that family. We will be children of God. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. He wants to share all of this. It's all Christ, and we're going to co-inherit with him. <clears throat> Verse 19. For the earnest expectation of this whole creation is waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. It's all out there. It's not doing anything except waiting. It, every planet has different properties. Every sun has different capabilities. And it's all waiting to be unlocked. For the creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who subjected the same in hope. Because the creation itself also shall be delivered from the tohu wabohu, that Satan brought about in creation. It was never created this way. It was created with the intention to be inhabited. But it became tohu wabohu. And now we see that the creation is waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God because the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. God is not changeless. He's not an essence. He's a person in a personal relationship with the Word and with us, with a purpose to expand his family and to use matter as the stage to expand this loving relationship. Matter matters, and relationships happen within time. Heavenly Father, we pause before you. We're so grateful to you, Father, because men know you are majestic, you are glorious, you are perfect, you are beyond our comprehension. And yet, Father, as much as you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent, you have revealed them unto babes. And just if we can be humble and just read your word, your secret is with us. We thank you so much, Father. We, we do not deserve to be a part of your Israel. We do not deserve this 
glorious opportunity to marry your son, to be born into your family, to be part of the God family forever and ever and ever, and to help you glorify this whole universe. We thank you, God, for who you are. We thank you for the loving relationship that you and the Word have and for wanting to share it. Father, help us, protect us, help us to walk in Christ as we learn of him from your word and not from philosophers. Protect us, guard us, bless us, and help us to love one another. We ask this blessing, Father, and your blessing in Jesus' most holy name. Amen. Amen. So, Brother Dylan, I'll give this back to you.